if there's anybody who's listening to your podcast, Ash, who writes to me and mentions your name, then I might be able to do something for them because I'm involved in the production of this of this conference. Thank you, Matthew. I really appreciate you offering that. Now, how do they get in touch with you if they want to write to you about this? So you can email Matthew at MatthewKimberly.com. This is Brian Clark from Copyblogger, and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy on ProductiveInsights.com. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to www.ProductiveInsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. Hello and welcome to part two of this two-part conversation with Matthew Kimberley. In part one, Matthew and I talked about productivity and mindset and how to be as impactful as possible in your workday and in your business by embracing technology to the right extent, by working in your zone of genius and by delegating the rest. Now we left off our conversation in part one where Matthew said he was happy to talk to me about dead fish. And I'm pleased to say that in this second part, we don't talk about dead fish, but we do in fact talk about public speaking and how to use humor and entertainment as powerful devices to engage your audience, to become an effective public speaker, and to generate high quality leads from the stage. A lot of these principles we talk about can also be applied as a blogger, as a podcaster, as a writer, and as a communicator in general. So I really hope you get a lot of value out of this second part of this two-part series. You can access all the show notes at ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 139. And if you think there's anybody who would benefit from it, please do feel free to forward this episode to them. I'd also be very grateful if you stop by and leave us a review on iTunes. Let's pick up the conversation where Matthew very kindly suggests that he'd be happy to talk to me about dead fish and where I exercise my discretion and I demonstrate my consideration for you as my listener and choose not to talk about dead fish, but to talk about public speaking instead. So let's pick up the conversation there. Here's Matthew Kimberley. I'd talk to you if we talked about dead fish (laughs) thank you it's very kind of you to say matthew well same here i feel the same way i really enjoy chatting to you as well okay so let's talk about public speaking then so we were talking about how to use public speaking to generate leads and how to use the tools of humor and engagement to generate better leads and high paying public speaking engagements yeah what's the question (laughs) so the question is Can you share with our listeners what you do or what your suggestions are to be able to become a better public speaker and get higher quality leads through public speaking? So I think last time I came, Ash, and we spoke about this, I probably said something along the lines of the fact that public speaking isn't the most efficient, but it is one of the most effective ways of generating quality leads, right? So I stand by that. I've been thinking about it a lot since since you asked me that, and I do stand by that. The reason I say it's not the most efficient is because typically it involves you having to travel somewhere. Typically involves you being in a room of, for the average public speaker, fewer than 200 or 300 people, or even less, particularly if you're getting started. It involves one or two days of your life in order to go and address this crowd. 
But, and that's why it's not particularly efficient. So a more efficient way of generating, let's say you manage to generate 90% of leads from a room of 150 people, you're going to have, what, 135, 140-odd leads as you leave, which is good, but, you know, if you've got a factor in travel time, hotel costs, this is assuming you're not being paid to speak, but you are speaking purely as a marketing activity, then yeah, you're going to spend 500 bucks, a couple of days out and accommodation. That's if you don't have to fly anywhere. So would you be better off spending 500 bucks on Facebook ads or on Google ads or on a JV partnership? Of course you would. You could do it from your bedroom, just like that. And it's much more efficient. However, there's the quality of the lead to consider and the effectiveness to consider. In terms of how I believe in ranks of forging an emotional connection with people, then there are different levels. The written word will certainly help you get inside somebody's brain. The hearing your voice will endear you to people even more. You will have a stronger, a stronger forge, a stronger bond if people can have heard your voice as well as the written word. This isn't true for everybody. If you don't have a great voice or if you're not a very fluent speaker, then this may count against you. I've certainly fallen in love with people's writing. And then when I've heard them speak on podcast interviews, I thought, well, you know, actually, I'll just stick to reading their stuff in the future. But as a general rule, all things being equal, then we have the video approach. If you're good on video, same rules apply. I think that people, you know, a small number of people will have a stronger bond with you if they've managed to look you in the eye. It's easier to fall in love with somebody if you know what they look like most of the time. And then the final, final aspect is if you can see somebody in person, if you can reach out and touch them, if you can sit down and have a drink with them, or if you're going to give them their your undivided attention for 45 minutes to 90 minutes while they're on stage, the link is going to be there. If they're a good speaker, the link is going to be so much stronger. So the kind of lead, the quality of lead that you generate, depending on who's in the audience, but let's say the same people are in the audience that would be in your retargeting audience for your ad offer, then you're more likely, I believe, I don't have hard data to back this up. It's just a sensation that I have is certainly reinforced by colleagues of mine who are speakers you can speak to a room of 300 people and you'll get another speaking gig out of it or you'll get a private coaching client. It's very rare that I take the stage for 45 minutes, 90 minutes and I don't get a private coaching client out of it, which is really my top level offer. It's very rare or at least an, an inquiry about that. So that doesn't happen so much if I would say, hey, read my thing for 45 minutes or listen to my podcast for 45 minutes. There's something that happens when the pheromones are flying around a room that endears people to you better and you become a better magnet for those leads than a lead magnet. Well, it's also the fact that you're physically standing on a stage. You're literally elevated in front of the audience, usually when you're speaking in a public speaking setting. And it's also, in my personal opinion, the fact that we are still far more tribal in our perception than we would care to admit. When the whole tribe is sitting there in front of one dude or dudette and that person is being implicitly endorsed by being put on stage and they're listening to this person handing down knowledge from up above, (laughs) that is a very, very powerful place to be and it delivers the ultimate position of authority. Absolutely. If it comes down to credibility and authority, I couldn't agree with you more. The person standing on the stage is the person who has the mic right? And you don't mess with the guy who's got the mic. You respect them. And there was a, I think it was it Shramko who told me, anyway, there's an individual in Canada who has taught public speaking at a very high level. Uh, I don't know if he still does, but he, he taught Shramko a tip or a technique or a trick 
to get even more authority and credibility the minute you step up on stage, which is the minute you're introduced by the host, you can only make physical contact with the host. Right. So if you watch my video from Superfast Business, you gave him a hug. I remember that. Was it 2015, 2016? I can't remember. So I gave him 2016. I gave him a hug. I gave James a hug. First thing I did was grab him and hold him and, and spoke to him. And it wasn't by accident. It's a transfer of, of authority. And also, you know, I kind of held him and directed the conversation, which is like, okay, so Matthew has control over the ultimate control, which I found. I find these small things to be somewhat effective sometimes, but certainly being conscious or being aware of why you do things on stage is super critical. Like I normally start my presentations by getting the audience to do something. The reason, whether that's stand up, touch your head, wave your hands around, do a little dance, sit down again. It's about control and it's about authority. It is about warming them up. It is about endearing them to me, but also it's about do what I say. Okay, so you want the room to be following your instruction. One of the best ways you can do that is by telling them, giving them instructions on how to do things. It's all about intent. So don't do something like that if you don't know why you're doing it. But if you're going to do something like that, know why you're doing it. And in my instance, it's to get the audience responsive. Another thing that I do, which is uh, deliberate, is I normally dress up when I'm on stage. And not everybody does this. It's not very trendy in the tech space, particularly, you know, we like to give a lot of credence to guys who are there in board shorts and a t-shirt, which I think is fantastic. Absolutely great. You know, that's how you're most comfortable. That's how you should be. I feel most comfortable in a waistcoat, in a vest, in a tie, maybe wearing a pair of suspenders or braces or a full suit, purely because it makes me feel more authoritative. And how you feel will absolutely be translated into the way that you talk. If I was all asked to get up on stage, having just climbed out of bed, wearing a pair of slippers, and boxer shorts and, a, and an old t-shirt that the dog has chewed, I wouldn't bring my A game. I know I wouldn't because it's here. It's the mental game. I'd say, I really should have brushed my teeth or have I got sleep dust in my eye or uh, I smell, can they smell me? You know, things like this. You bring your A game to the stage and I, you know, you do everything with intent and it, it certainly helps you with that authority and credibility play that you mentioned. I remember at that event when you hugged James, I was actually speaking at the same event and I was terrified because I hadn't spoken to such a big audience. In fact, I don't think I'd ever spoken on stage before that I can recall. Such a good job. <laughs> and I I watched and rewatched our conversation, which by the way, we had about a week prior to that that event. And I learned from you, Matthew, about the tips. And I listened to a lot of other stuff as well. And you gave us some great tips just there. So I want to bring this out to the listeners. One is engage the audience and get them to follow your direction in not necessarily a, a nasty way. But one thing I did, the way I chose to do it, is I got people to do a show of hands and say, how many people here have heard about XYZ? Classic technique. Yeah, you're just saying you're training the audience to engage with you. And the show of hands is something that is very visible. So if you choose not to show your hand, that's fine. But if the rest of the people around you are showing their hands or lifting their hands, I should say, that would then put that implicit pressure on you. Coming back to the whole tribal thing, I really think we are far more driven by the group than we realize in our society even today. Absolutely right. And that's the, the, the tribal thing is also the social proof thing or the, or the wisdom of crowds thing. Or if everybody around you has got their hands raised, then you know, there's no risk. No risk in you raising your hands, even if you're not feeling like it. But that call and response technique is a classic, particularly from those who sell from the stage. If you ever go to one of those multi-speaker pitch fest events where 
most speakers will be selling something, you'll see more hands raised and the speaker's hand will be going up and down. And that's a mirroring technique from neuro-linguistic programming. You know, I raise my hand, you raise yours. Monkey see, monkey do, call response, call response, run to the back of the room, right? So this is a very, very classic technique that apparently is proven to work. And I like to have fun with things like that. I've given a speech where I say, raise your hand if you've ever been at a presentation where they tell you to raise your hand. Being aware of these things, I think, gives you, gives you power. It's fun. So there are some great tips right there for our listeners to you know, develop a better public speaking presence and develop a better stage presence. Now, you did mention earlier on that provided you're a good speaker, you can get leads. What happens if you're not a good speaker? Right. So I've seen some terrible speakers give really useful information. I mean, technically terrible speakers, bad technique, bad microphone technique, bad command of the stage, bad command of the audience, but they've got such a good story or they've got such useful information that people, or they might have a poor offer. I've seen people flocking to them to either spend money or get more information. So really, this is why it's for people who want to be paid to speak or people who are already speaking and just want to be better at it, which I think should be everybody. Anyone who's got part of a stage should desire to give a good performance, right? So if you're not a good speaker, it doesn't matter. As long as you've got a good message to share and you can share with love and you respect the audience and for the love of God, you are prepared, then don't worry about any of this strategy or technique. You know, learn how to hold a microphone or even better, get one of those journeyman or strap-on mics, as I call them, and just come with something tangible. But be prepared. Be prepared. Be prepared. The most miserable and most disrespectful performances I've ever seen on stage is when people who assume they're relatively good and might be relatively good speakers stand up there and wing it. They just say, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to go by the... And it's so rare. It's so rare to find a performer that can do that. You must assume that you can't. There is no downside to being prepared. There is no downside to knowing your material inside out. Doesn't mean... Right. So the best speakers in the world, the most highly paid professional speakers, only have one or two keynote speeches, made maximum three. And these are highly rehearsed, performed hundreds of times and repeated over and over and over again. It's like if you are a, a rock band, you're not expected to put, you perform the same playlist on tour. You all, people always want to see your favorites. You're not expected to perform a new song every single time you appear. And it would be a mistake because you're not going to be bringing your best. Well, it's the same for speakers. So it doesn't mean that when you're a practiced speaker and you're good at talking and you're good at forming sentences and you understand how to structure a performance and you understand how to answer questions and how to deliver material in a useful way, it doesn't mean that you can't deliver off-the-cuff performances. It doesn't mean that you can't answer questions in a panel Q&A with great alacrity and wit and fluency. It doesn't mean any of those things. It doesn't mean that you can't get up and give an impromptu presentation. It doesn't. But if you're going, to, if you're looking to become a paid public speaker or somebody who is really honing their craft at speaking for leads or for sales, then you must prepare and you must rehearse and you must be prepared. When we spoke last time, as I said earlier, I, I was speaking on stage a week later. That was the biggest takeaway from our conversation. Prepare, 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 and then prepare some more and then prepare some more. And I just want to acknowledge James here because he insisted I speak on stage. I was actually thinking he was just going to do a Q&A. I didn't think I was ready to speak on stage, but he was kind enough to insist that I do. And it was a great opportunity. I'll always be grateful to him for that. But it was also a very scary one. And the only thing that 
held me together when I was standing in front of those 300 people and that front row was lined with people who are got, you know, seven, eight, nine figure businesses. And here's me standing up there talking. It was preparation. I just had memorized what I was going to say. I had thought about how I was going to say it. I practiced it. So that segues nicely into our next conversation, our next piece is biggest mistake. Now, the biggest mistake I think people can make is not preparing for public speaking. I think you're right. And I, I really, as soon as you said biggest mistake, I think, I think I've just given it to you. It's not preparing. It's winging it. It's thinking that you can make it up as you go along. You normally can't. However, the second biggest mistake that I've seen is disrespect for the audience or not being on the same level as the audience or not knowing who the audience are. And I'll give you an example. I went to a whiskey tasting event a couple of years ago with one of the world's leading authorities on whiskey. And I was really excited about it. And we all lined up. It started a bit late, which was, uh, it actually started a lot late, which was kind of disrespect for the audience anyway. But I thought, what's well, logistical nightmare so i'll forgive it it's probably almost certainly not his fault he was probably ready to go at nine o'clock when he should have been but there were problems so he took the stage and he, he introduced himself and then he held up a, a glass of whiskey and he said right so this whiskey is a very light tan color almost like you know, italian a pair of italian shoes calf's leather italian shoes very light tan is translucent i'd like you to tell me could you raise your hand and let me know what we can tell about a whiskey from its color. And the first person put up their hand and they said, it tells you how old it is. And he said, nope. Maybe the question was, what can we tell about a whiskey's taste from its color or something like that? But I can't remember. But the, the next person said, oh, uh, it's indicative of, of where it was made. And he goes, nope. And he went around the audience and four or five suggestions till it was no, no, no. And I saw hands go down. Every time he shot somebody down, people put their hands down, partly because they were going to say the same thing, but also partly because they risked a no. And right, it wasn't even a, that's really interesting. Many people believe that. That's not actually the case. Is a completely different answer to no. And then he said this. He said, you're all wrong. The color of a whiskey has nothing to do with its taste. And everybody went, just been scolded by the teacher. And from that moment on, whenever he said, whenever he asked for audience interaction, whenever he said, can anybody tell me? Not a person in a room of 75 people raised their hands because they didn't want to look stupid. He had trained us to feel stupid answering his questions. And I was put off him and, in fact, not whiskey. It didn't take a lot to put me off whiskey, right? So I'm sure he will still have got leads because he was very authoritative and he definitely knew what he was talking about. But he lost the audience. He lost them from everyone. You know, why would you? No one said, okay, so, so actually maybe he was exerting more authority by being abusive, right? So you see some, this is an uh, interesting philosophical question, but you do see some people who are caught in abusive marriages do everything they can not to offend the master, but it does involve them keeping their mouth shut and disappearing inside themselves. And that's what happened. So I think people were still keen to please him. People were still keen to be respected by the authority. And the authority may have commanded respect, but he didn't command endearment, which for me is a, uh, why live life? Yeah, yeah, and you know, if you want to be the trusted authority and you want to transact with someone, most people I know don't want to transact with somebody who is up on that pedestal. It might work in other cultures. I remember studying about this in my MBA. They talked about power distance relationships by some guy called Hofstetter who did all these various studies. And apparently in the eastern part of the world, people really want the authoritative figure, the top dog that goes, nope, nope, nope. 
But that's not how it is in the Western world in which I grew up predominantly. How do you feel straddling two cultures then, Ash? You feel like, I don't know. I don't know how to react in this situation. I'm attracted to the authority, but I'm also an Australian, so I'm going to tread all over the grass. If there's a sign that says, do not walk on the grass, I'm Aussie, so I'm going to tread on it. But I've also got this Eastern heritage, so maybe I shouldn't. Oh, dilemma. It is. It is a bit of a dilemma. And it is also... A blessing because I've been able to take the hybrid of the two. I do think I have a healthy combination of respect, but also the ability to question authority. And I think both are important. I think there has to come a time when you say, okay, so-and-so is the authority and I need to follow them at least until I become an authority. And then I can start questioning the authority. I worked in a school in Malaysia for a while, uh, for about a year. I worked in a school in Malaysia and it was an international school. There were lots of kids from all over the place, but predominantly from Southeast Asia. So Malaysia and Indonesia and some from Thailand, many from Korea and a handful of, of Americans and, and a couple of Brits. And I remember watching one day this new American kid who hadn't been at the school for very long was playing rugby. And if you've ever played rugby in Southeast Asia, it's miserable. It's the ground is the ground is slimy on top and rock hard underneath. It's swelteringly hot. Nobody wants to be there. It hurts. Um, the grass is full of insects and snakes. It's a miserable proposition. But this American kid healed. The referee said, ow. And the American kid immediately turned around and appealed the decision. He was like, no way that was out. All of the Asian kids went, you what? <laughs> <laughs> he just questioned the referee's decision. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating. In fact, you heard, I think I heard a story. Was it a Korean airline or something? There was some crash, some tragic airplane crash uh, that could have been resolved had this culture of not being entirely, it might have been Japanese, I can't remember, entirely submissive to authority hadn't existed because the co-pilot, who was a junior pilot, realized that something was wrong, but the pilot didn't. So the more senior person was saying, everything's fine. And, and he's like, um, sir, do you think that maybe we could possibly consider the option that we're actually going down instead of up? And the pilot said, oh, shut up. And he was like, sorry, very, very, very sorry, sir. To the point where, you know, hundreds of people died. So it's uh, tragic, but absolutely fascinating. We've taken another left turn. Yes, we have. But it's a very interesting conversation. So it's tempting to, to stay on the, on the tangent. So actually, i tell you how I can pull this back in. Ash. Cultural differences when you're talking around the world knowing the audience and respect for the audience, right? So I recently did a couple of gigs in Tanzania and Kenya. So Dar es Salaam and Nairobi, where I spoke to the Association of East African Travel Agents. And I was bought there by Amadeus, the large travel booking firm, uh, the travel software company. And I had to take a little bit of time to get to know the audience. So there was me and there was a local. Uh, local was, was the MC. He was introducing me. He was kind of facilitating and I was doing the talk workshop stuff. He got more laughs per minute than I've ever seen anybody got get. I got fewer laughs per minute. And yeah, that's a stupid metric, but I use it as an example of how well I was reading the locals than I've ever got before. It wasn't a disaster by any means. It was a huge success. But the jokes that I was telling in the UK, the jokes that I was telling in the US just weren't landing in the same jokes or the stories. It's not all about jokes, but do you know what I mean? It's a good cultural difference. Stories I was telling weren't landing in the same way as I'm used to them telling landing in the US or in the UK. And yet the local came in, told between you and me what I considered to be a really lame joke, and everybody was in hysterics. And it was all because it was his it was his people. Of course he understood what was going to make me laugh. So that was fascinating. So I didn't change anything. I didn't tone anything down. I just realised that were I to remain in that area, uh, were I to go back, 
I would get to know over time what landed and what didn't. And if you don't know in advance, you ask. I belong to a Facebook group which is made up of professional speakers. And a frequent refrain in there, a frequent question is, I'm off to Saudi Arabia. Is there anything is off limits? These, I think, are the, you know, these, I think, are the things that I shouldn't be mentioning. These are things that always get a laugh in the US. Will they get a laugh in Saudi Arabia? Or if I'm speaking in Japan, is it okay to poke fun at the CEO? And questions like this will frequently come up. When I spoke in Australia at James's event, I realized that the shtick that I use in the US, and my shtick is kind of British royal family kind of person, you know, dressed up in a suit and tie, incredibly British. And, you know, people in the US tell me frequently, they're like, I could listen to you all day long just because you have this fantastic British accent. Doesn't work. It doesn't work in Australia. You know, they're like, who's this pommy? <laughs> right? <laughs> and the same thing applies. You know, I'm using jokes there that aren't going to land in Australia. And it's fascinating. So I think, I think if you are going to be speaking internationally, you either go with something which is proven across multicultural things or entirely straight and you can't go wrong an entirely straight presentation is fantastic by the way as long as it's well delivered there doesn't have to be a laugh in it in a place like india at least the india that i grew up in i mean it's completely different now but in a place like india humor doesn't even 80 years ago 80 years ago that's right yeah even a place like india 80 years ago when i grew up humor didn't figure like you don't try and be funny on stage when you're trying to communicate you just do the the whiskey guy thing, you know, no, no, you just dictate the terms, you're there to deliver knowledge and everybody's just your minion. Do you think that's a hangover from colonial rule? Do you think that's the way the Brits were with the locals? Possibly. And in fact, I think that it was one of the things that possibly made it easier for the Brits to colonize India and a lot of the countries they did colonize. You see, when you were talking earlier... Assumed authority. We're going to walk in there like we own the Yes, what Taki talks about. Yeah, exactly. The reason I think that people tend to question authority more in the West as compared to the East is because I believe in the East, the smallest divisible unit of society in a lot of ways is considered to be the family. In other words, a small group. Whereas in the West, the smallest divisible unit is usually considered to be the individual. And we are taught to think as individuals. So the plus side is when we think as individuals, we do question things. And the way in which we connect with other people is by poking fun at authority because everyone wants to band together and question authority, but in a convivial sort of way. Whereas in the East, that's blasphemous. You don't question authority. That's bad. <laughs> you do need to be aware of the cultural nuances if you're going to be speaking internationally. And respect for the audience is about respecting what is acceptable for them because you don't want people to feel uncomfortable. I gave a wedding speech quite recently. And everybody who knew the groom, I was the best man. Everyone who knew the groom came up to me afterwards and said, you nailed it. That was fantastic. Everybody who knew the bride uh, came up to me afterwards and said, dude, that was really quite harsh. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> I can't tell you. I can't, the, the language that I used was not suitable for this podcast, nor, in fact, was it suitable for half the audience. But I felt bad about it. I felt bad not because I'd given a bad speech. I'd given a great speech, but because I hadn't left every single individual i just hadn't considered right because i'm roasting basically my job is to roast the best, uh, roast the groom and i did a killer job of that and the vast majority of people said that was fantastic but it was a wedding and the groom loved it and the bride loved it and the families loved it and that was great but there was still a handful of people who were like oh, that didn't make me feel very comfortable because it was so far out there and they didn't know the groom well enough and I kind of wish that I'd considered. There's no great regrets. It was, a, it was by and large a success, but there was still a handful of people, you know, maybe one table of people 
who didn't get it. And I, I realized that the speech was for the groom and really was for the benefit of the groom's friends. But it's still, if I could do it again, I would have made a couple of changes just to soften it up a little bit or to counter the very hard blows with some more gentle tickles. Fair enough. That's a very good point. So that brings it back to having a deep empathy for the audience, which is the next thing I wanted to talk about. How does one research their audience prior to a public speaking engagement? Now, you've already given us some great tips. One of them is if you're going and speaking in another country, then do a bit of research about what flies in that culture, what works in that culture. Maybe humor isn't even a thing you need to worry about. What else can we do and what do you do? How do you prepare for a public speaking engagement? Well, firstly, we've got really it's industry specifics. That's going to be super important. If you're going to be addressing a crowd of realtors, or if you're going to be addressing a crowd of insurance agents, or if you're going to be addressing a crowd of self-employed people, or if you're going to be addressing a crowd of CEOs, you need to know who's in the audience in order that you can inform yourself. So that A, you can use the best case studies and examples if they're part of your performance. And B, you can immerse yourself in the, la- in the language and the culture of the audience before you get there. So I'm doing a corporate gig in, say, September. And it's an industry that I don't know much about. And actually, they have a couple of requirements. They, I don't really tailor my keynote, but there's a workshop attached to this one. And for the workshop, they said, we'd like to touch on this, this, and this specific to our industry. And I said, no problem, but here's what we're going to need. We're going to need two meetings. I want a meeting with you and a meeting with one of the other people. And I need some bedside reading so that I can come prepared. So I'm just using the right words. And if you're dealing with a regulated industry, if you're like in the States, some legal or mainly legal or pharmaceutical clients, you can't say, if you're a marketing guy, you can't say, go out there on social media and create YouTube videos and promise the world because they're regulated. You know, there's some industries can't ever use testimonials ever. So you have to be aware of these things before you go in and, and look like an idiot. And often that's just a question of picking up the phone to another speaker who's used to dealing with these audiences. Speakers are actually better to speak to rather than audience members because audience members, like if you know a lawyer and you say, listen, I'm giving a speech to a bunch of lawyers, what should I be aware of? They may not know what the context is if, if this person isn't used to speaking. Whereas if I ask another speaker who is also, let's say, in the marketing world, I say, I'm going to speak to a bunch of lawyers. What do I need to know? Okay, so here are the main things. Can't use testimonials. They have to archive everything that they ever create. It has to be approved by a compliance officer before they even write a, a Facebook update. Stuff like this. Okay, they just re- they understand marketing. They understand speaking. They understand the audience. And it's that perfect trifecta which will give me the most useful insight. So you've really got to know other speakers. Uh, the reason you've got to know other speakers as well is because my mentor and former business partner, Michael Port, says quite rightly, and it was Felicity, I'm going to say Huffman, who told him this. It was um, friends get friends work, right? So if you know other speakers, if they give a killer keynote and the organizer or the meeting planner comes up to them after and says, you were so good, I wish we could have you back every year, but we can't. Is there anybody that's just as good as you? They can say, yeah, Ash. Or they get approached and say, are oh, you available on the 21st of September? I'm not, but let me introduce you to Ash. Right? If you don't know other speakers, you're going to cut your number of potential speaking gigs by a factor of at least, well, I don't know about factors, but by a good 10 to 20% of gigs that you could potentially get. Well, some fantastic tips there that you've shared with us. Another thing that I think is important as a speaker is to get an understanding of the unsaid stuff. Like I I get it if it's in pharmaceuticals, you know, there's regulations and all that sort of stuff. But also there are certain things I'm sure in certain circles you don't speak about. I can't think of any industry, actually, um, actually, I can't think of any industry specific examples, but certainly some culturally specific examples. You know, you wouldn't talk about the king of Thailand if you were in Thailand. 
perhaps. I don't know if there's anything that I wouldn't talk about. No, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I agree with you there. In fact, I, I think he's asking the wrong question. I think the question would be, what, what should I be talking about? Rather than saying, what must I not talk about? Think, ask yourself a different question, which is, what is the best story that I can tell? Or what is the most industry-specific, relevant example? It shouldn't be, how can I avoid being irrelevant or how can I avoid causing offense? But the question should be, how can I be most relevant? How can I be most useful? What things should I be talking about in order to best get the message home? And for many professional speakers, that might just mean including two new slides in place of, you know, they've got one case study swapping it out for another case study because you're not going to write your presentation from scratch for every new performance that you give. So it might just be a question of allegories, stories, examples, I need three from your industry or I need three that are relevant to your industry or three that come from your country or something like that. So relevance, that's another very important word. Make it relevant to the audience. Okay, so so I'm going to try and summarize everything we've said and let's see how I go and then maybe we can come up with some action steps and then we'll talk about how listeners can find out more about you. The things we talked about today were speaking isn't necessarily the most efficient way to get leads, but it is one of the most effective ways when you compare it to something like Facebook advertising or any of these other channels, you can still get leads, but not all leads are created equal. Maybe there's an alchemy that happens when one stands up on stage in front of a bunch of people. Maybe it's the endorsement of the tribe. It just gives you that incredible amount of implicit authority when there's a whole room of people sitting there listening to you speak and you're giving them knowledge and information. However, it is very important not to be condescending in most cases and not to do the no, no, no whiskey thing. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the earlier part of this conversation. Sounds like a nightmare, the no whiskey thing. (laughs) What? There's something about humor and music which almost bonds a tribe and kind of puts us in a position of being arm in arm, looking out at the world together as opposed to being us and them. It kind of removes that us and themness out of the situation. And this is where using humor in some cultures, not all, is a very effective way of breaking the ice, building a certain sense of connection, building camaraderie. And starting to develop a platform based on which you can move forward and deliver knowledge. Something else we talked about was, to some degree, training the audience to engage with you. We called it call and response, where you might say, can I just get a show of hands? How many people here have been asked to do a show of hands at a previous public speaking event? And there's a combination of humor as well as the call and response thing. Another very important thing that you should do when you're speaking is Understand your audience, develop empathy, become aware if you're not already aware, be aware of the cultural implications of where you're going. And culture doesn't necessarily mean just geographically. It could also mean industry-related cultural mores. Like, for example, if it's a very regulated industry, you wouldn't talk about doing things that flout regulation. And one of the best things you said that I really didn't think about until you said it was pick up the phone and call another speaker if you want to understand your audience and help each other out as speakers because that's where you get a lot of knowledge from. Anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, if you want to be a better speaker, you must, must, must check out the work that Michael Port and Amy Port are doing at heroicpublicspeaking.com. Now, Michael and Amy are, to my mind, foremost experts probably in the world on performance. Now, they won't teach you how to sell from the stage and... 
Well, they will do, but that's not, no, they won't. That's not what they teach. They teach powerful performance. They want to turn you into a heroic public speaker who will save the world and change the world with your speech. They have been running this organization for a number of years now. I worked with Michael and Amy for some time. You know, with Michael, I was, I was with Michael for about six years. But I truly believe there's nobody better. Almost everything I've learned about public speaking and performance has been from those two. So Michael's book is called Steal the Show. And if you go to Amazon or any good bookstore, you'll get a copy of Steal the Show. And if you go to heroicpublicspeaking.com, then you can, if you're serious about giving killer performances, you must join their mailing list and, and attend their events. There's an event happening at the end of September in Philadelphia called Heroic Public Speaking Live. And that's heroicpublicspeaking.com slash live. And that's three days of world-class instruction. If you go and look at the site, you'll see the caliber of the teachers. These are teachers from the best performance schools in the United States. These aren't marketers. These are people who teach MFAs, Masters of Fine Arts, who teach at, at theater schools and performance schools and they're training you in your voice, in your movement, in your improvisational skills, in your speech writing skills, all of these, there'll be some live coaching. And actually, Ash, as perhaps as something you could offer the listeners of this podcast, if they get in touch with me and they mention your name, I can do them a special deal on the tickets. So if they if they would be, you know, tickets start at 1500 which is worth an absolutely worth every cent for a 3-day highly interactive teaching experience. If there's anybody who's listening to your podcast Ash, who writes to me and mentions your name, then I might be able to do something for them because I'm involved in the production of this of this conference. Thank you Matthew. I really appreciate you offering that. Now, how do they get in touch with you if they want to write to you about this? So you can email matthew at matthewkimberley.com. And MatthewKimberley.com is M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y.com. E-Y at the end. You go to my website, MatthewKimberley.com. And while you're there, if you're a business owner, I strongly recommend that you sign up for updates from me. You can ignore the updates if you want, but you're going to get immediately a copy of my Bible, which is five things you need to do every morning to get more clients in the next 60 days. And it outlines my... 10-minute relationship building strategy. That means if you need to get someone to help you with something or you need to get someone to buy something or you need to get someone to get you on a stage or you need to call a speaker for some advice, you're going to, in the next 60 days, you're going to build those relationships like you've never done before. So that's MatthewKimberley.com. Okay. It's MatthewKimberley.com, spelled M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y.com. And grab yourself a copy of Matthew's guide on how to build your leads in 60 days. You can also email him on matthew at matthewkimberley.com to get a special deal. Thank you very much, Matthew, for offering that to our audience. I appreciate that. For the heroic public speaking event happening in Philadelphia, I will link to all of these things in the show notes. And this episode will be published on productiveinsights.com forward slash 139. So thank you very much for being on the show, Matthew. I really enjoyed talking to you as I always do. And I look forward to having you back on again sometime. Thanks for having me, Ashley. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today?